listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. They were building positions in there if for a fight. If to us, by the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad, there would be nobody to run boots full of blood. And the next thing I hear was alarms screaming. Chances of survival were very, very slick. The soldiers didn't want to go into the ambushes, so they'd send the kids in first. So he was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the pain burst. Proud of the crew, proud of what I've achieved and what I'm doing. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Today is an interview with a former Special Forces soldier. Don Barnby has served his country in Cyprus, Bougainville and East Timor, but first he was an SAS soldier in the Vietnam War. This is the first part of Thomas Kay's conversation with a phantom of the jungle. Hey, I'm Thomas Kay and I'm here with Donald Barnby at his home in Canberra. Don, thanks for coming on Life on the Line. Absolute pleasure. Don, um, so let's start from the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Bewarana. My dad was a New South Wales police officer, so I was born in Bewarana in 1950 and my sister was born at Burke in 1948. So we spent a lot of time in country New South Wales. And from there, when I think we were about four, we went to Moolumba. We spent seven years there. Then we went back to Cobar, back to the bush. Um, I did primary school there and then went to Wellington near Dubbo. Uh, and that's when I completed, finished high school and joined the army from Wellington in 1967. Did your family have any military ties that drew you into the service? Yeah, well, my grandfather, dad's dad, dad's father, was in the Boer War in the second New South Wales Mounted Rifles. I used to hear a few stories from him as a young kid, but he didn't talk much. They didn't talk much in those days. Uh, And my uncle, dad's brother, one of dad's brothers, served in the 9th Division in the the Second World War. Strangely, we had nobody that I, I know of in my family in the First World War, which is really weird. He served, Uncle Tony served in the Second World War in the 9th Divi, a second, second machine gun battalion. Went all through the Middle East and then uh, up in the islands and got wounded and discharged in 44. And we used to live in the country, as I said, and they lived at Lane Cove in Sydney. So when we had our big adventure on school holidays, we'd go down to the city sometimes. And we'd often stay at Tony and Molly's place. And Tony used to say, I wonder what we could find out in the garage in, in one of those boxes, Don. And I'd follow him down in dark garage and he'd open up these musky old boxes, you know, and there'd be German helmets and bayonets and badges and photographs and all that sort of stuff. And, and he did tell a few stories, but not a lot, you know, not a lot of storytelling. But Dad was so frustrated at all this because he tried to get out of the police force during the war and join the Air Force because I was named after two of his friends from grammar, boys' grammar, um, that were Spitfire pilots and were killed in the Middle East. So Dad wanted was a frustrated fighter pilot, basically, but they wouldn't let him out because it was a reserved occupation. And Tony was in the police force too, but he lied and he joined up somewhere else. He, he, but everybody knew Dad around Sydney where he tried to join up, so he was just, just a, you know, like, knockback. But no, there wasn't a lot of military background, but I used to love reading about 
war. Uh, Mum used to, with my shilling a week allowance, she used to buy me those war picture library and combat picture library comics, you know. I've got number one right up to 200 or something. And so I'd read those and, you know, and pretend I could speak German and, and all, that sort of, all that sort of stuff, yeah. And then Mum engendered in me a, an interest in a love of reading, so she bought me proper books about the war, yeah. And I remember years ago she bought me a book called The Phantom Major by Virginia Cowles, and it was all about SAS, not, not knowing that one day I would be an SAS. But, yeah, that was fairly ironic. But, uh, yeah, I used to love, I used to immerse myself in stories, yeah, about the war because I found it very interesting, ordinary people doing amazing stuff. So, Was war and military service like openly spoken about at home? Well, Vietnam was later on in, in the 60s when our commitment in Vietnam uh, started up. I remember being at school and uh, I was still at school in 1966 when Long Tan, Battle of Long Tan happened and uh, I was just chafing at the bit to get out so I left school a year early. I didn't do my leaving certificate. So I left early and uh, as soon as I was 17, I joined the army. So, but the actual talking of military subjects, no, not a lot, but it was in the news occasionally. You know, I was born during the uh, start of the Korean War. So, you know, that, that was always a bit of a talking point, I suppose. Can you tell me about your joining up and your early training days? I joined when I was 17. You had to be 17 to join the regular army tried to join the Navy um, and I was two weeks too old to do the cadetship over at Lewin, HMAS Lewin in West Australia to become a tra- apprentice trade in the Navy. I'm sort of glad that eventually because I had more fun in the Army, I think. I left school when I was 16 and nine months and I couldn't join until I was 17. So dad made me work for that three months and pay rent until I was old enough to join the Army. And I, my birthday's on the 8th of April. I joined uh, my first day in the Army was the 17th of May, 1967. Mum and dad took me down to Watson's Bay Personnel Depot. And I remember getting on the bus and we all chuffed off to Wagga, Kapuka and uh, did our recruit training at Kapuka. I actually remember it quite vividly because um, as we walked in the mess at 3am in the morning or something, the bus was a fairly long bus trip in those days, Scott McKenzie, the, uh, San Francisco was playing at 3am in the morning. You know, very, And I, I always remember that. It's just like, wow, yeah, some of the music out of that era was great. But um, so we did recruit training, which I found quite easy. I, I shouldn't really say that, but I, I found it quite doable because Dad was a hard bastard and he used to really instill, he said, it, you know, hard, world's hard, so, you know, toughen up basically. And So I found a lot of the stuff, you know, getting up early and always being busy and all that, not a problem, didn't didn't worry me at all. A lot of, lot of guys found that quite difficult, but I actually welcomed it, relished it. The disappointment phase came because I was 17 when I uh, did my crew training at uh, three months. I put in for infantry, artillery and armour. And uh, because uh, you had to be 19 to go to Vietnam, um, I couldn't really be, I, I understand now, but I didn't in those days, I, you couldn't be sent to a unit that may well be on rotation to go back to Vietnam or go to Vietnam. So, and because I'd worked in a hardware store for three months, they said, oh, you, you can go to ordnance. Yeah, you don't win Victoria Crosses or anything in ordnance. You just get bloody paper burns and fall off a forklift or something. I mean, I know they're an integral part of the, of the military and the military doesn't go anywhere unless it has, you know, food and blankets and clothes and all that sort of stuff, weapons. But um, you don't tell a 17-year-old that was just hell-bent on getting into the army and going to Vietnam that you're now going to ordnance. Wonderful. Really excited about that. 
Then I then I went down to Bandana and did my ordnance core training for three months, and was then posted to two BOD at at uh, Moorbank, New South Wales, near Halsworthy. I was not a very good young soldier in those days because I wasn't that happy a happy chappy, and uh, I ended up becoming a forklift driver, and I got into horrible trouble. I had my mate in Ramey uh, that was next door. He hotted up my forklift, put a 186 short motor in it, holding motor. So I had the fastest forklift in the Sydney district, I think. So, And you used to drive them backwards. So we used to have races around these big warehouses in Moorbank that were built by the Yanks during the Second World War. And uh, I missed the last corner on one of my uh, final races and went straight through the wall, missed, missed these enormous big beams. Would have killed me. And ended up in the parade ground with, with all this asbestos and dust falling over me and there was a like yeah you know, like the roadrunner when he goes through a wall that's like a shape and there was a shape of a forklift <laughs> through the wall of this warehouse out onto a parade ground and, and there just happened to be a big meeting of all the chief bosses in uh, ordnance and they were coming out and they saw this figure on a very dusty forklift sitting in the middle of the parade ground covered in asbestos sheets it's a wonder i didn't get asbestosis or something so I was charged and sent to uh, uh, Halsworthy Military Correctory Establishment for a while to retrain my mind. And then I was, uh, I was re- being really quite naughty because, yeah, knowing Dad was a copper and all that sort of stuff. I just I, I didn't want to do what I was doing, painting helmets and sorting clothes and, you know, just was not my idea of the Army. And I used to wear overalls to work. And my bosses were civilians. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's about as low down the food chain if you want to be a soldier that it is. So, and I started making my own weapons, pinching stuff and, you know, hoping to get caught basically so I'd get discharged. But then my mate who I, who I joined with, who, who hotted up my forklift, he was old enough and he, uh, the SAS selection um, carter had, had come around. And because he was older than me, he went for it, got it. He was a Burmese guy. And he was selected for SAS Carter Course selection. And uh, he said, mate, when you're old enough, <laughs> when you're old enough, um, put in for it and you'll get it and I'll give you your first beret. So Burma duly went off and uh, did his, all his training and uh, ended up in Vietnam in three squadron, the three SA squad. And meanwhile, I'm back in, back in Moorbank, you know, painting helmets and driving forklifts. And, uh, and finally, the SAS selection committee came back around again. So I, I put in and everybody, you know, big joke, you'll never get it. And I was selected. I must have been really short of applicants on that round or something. But anyway, I got, got chosen at least to do the selection process. And I remember the last words that all these guys said, my workmates, colleagues, as I walked out of the warehouse, they said, you won't even last the train trip to Perth, let alone, you know, SA selection. <laughs> God, what a joke. I said, right. You know, the old through the glove deal, you will never see me ever again. And I never went back. I passed. You're a 17-year-old volunteer, and was there any tension between the regular army and the national servicemen? The only tension that I saw, that I witnessed and uh, experienced as a, bearing in mind I was 17, I mean, yeah, just stupid, quite frankly, was that we as regs had the old accommodation at Kapuka, and the Nashos were taken into the new brick buildings, which we finally moved into. We finally moved into, but they, the national servicemen went in there straight away when they first started in the army, whereas we went to a place called Silver City, which was old tin Quonset huts, and then we ended up halfway through our uh, recruit training. I think we ended up in 
the brick buildings. Animosity? No, not really. They are always older and, as a result, generally more mature. I uh, had yeah, 17, as I said, to join the army, and I was a very young 17-year-old country boy. Uh, I remember going up to the boozer. Uh, I wasn't allowed to drink in those days, drink beer. So I'd get my big bottle of Coca-Cola and a big slab of cho- uh, Cadbury's chocolate, and I'd just sit and watch all these guys get drunk. Because uh, uh, one thing, you know, being the son of a police officer, you know, they tell you a few things about people. And, and uh, Dad used to say, you know, just watch somebody. Watch how they get drunk then you'll find out what they're really like. So I used to sit back and sort of watch this circus going on around me with all these drunks, you know, and uh, I'd be supping on my Coca-Cola bottle, needing my chocolate, and I'd figure out if there's anybody I'd ever, ever go and leave with if I had a chance, you know. So I'd get rid of all the aggro people and all the loudmouths and all that sort of stuff. So. While you're at uh, Base Ordnance Depot, you firsthand saw the carnage that walk and wreck. Can you tell us about that? I remember one of my jobs was going over to the um, the Ramey workshops and helping to clean out APCs because the Australian Army brings everything back from overseas when they, unlike the Americans, they leave it in, in a combat area, whereas we bring everything back, shirts, helmets, webbing, boots, everything, to be border surveyed, I think they call it, whether it's uh, good enough to be going to a CMF unit, cadet unit or bin scrapped or a disposal store. And they used to bring these APCs and Land Rovers back. And I remember one uh, APC armoured personnel carrier that came back in. I was over there with a whole group of uh, guys and we were cleaning it all out because it had been blown up in a mine incident. We were hosing it out and trying to get any salvageable bits off it. And we found what was left of a finger or a hand under under one of the ammunition bins in the back of it. You know, it, it had been cleaned out in Vietnam but sent back. But this thing had, had escaped notice, obviously, and... It, yeah, we could smell it. So we, we found that and uh, that would look pretty, pretty terrible. And another part of my job over there, because I uh, ended up in two base, two mill hospital for a while with uh, hepatitis and glandular fever. The old sergeant there knew I wasn't very happy at 2BOD. So he offered me a position of an ambulance driver when I got well, got discharged out of the hospital, which I did. And, and one of those jobs was to go to Richmond Air Base one night a week and pick up all the casualties from that used to fly in from Vietnam in the C-130s. So you could see these guys. I mean, yeah, you'd load them into the back of your ambulance and then you'd take them off to wherever. But, uh, you know, horrible mine injuries, you know, sometimes legs, no legs, you know, arms, you're riddled with shrapnel. That was a wake-up call as to what war really is about. It's not all, you know, fun and games. One of the most shocking things for most people is when they see their first dead body. Can you tell us how you came across your first? It wasn't in Vietnam. Uh, it was when I was uh, driving ambulances at Two Mill Hospital, Ingleburg. I was talking with the nurses one night about 2am in the morning. Somebody heard this enormous explosion outside. Ingleburn used to be on the road to Liverpool. The Crossroads Hotel used to be down the road there somewhere. And uh, this soldier coming back from down there, drunk as a lord, in his Rover 90 car, I always remember it was a Rover 90, hit a, um, a truck delivering newspapers head on. And they burst, burst into flames. The soldier was dead, steering wheel through his chest, and the truck driver was burning alive. And we heard this enormous explosion outside. It was only, you know, like 300 metres up on the road. So we all ran out, and I remember trying to help others get this driver out. I don't think he had a seatbelt on, but he was burning, and I remember flesh came off his arm. I tried to grab his arm. He was screaming, obviously. He was, he was on fire. 
And, I mean, you know, Jesus, I was 18, I think, and uh, boom, that really... Uh, and I always remember some some woman, the police were there by that stage and the fireys and put it out and some woman stopped with, and had a son and she parked a car down the road and came back with her little four or five-year-old son and said, look, Jimmy, look at the burnt man. And I just went off my brain. Probably said things I shouldn't have said. And, yeah, I was pretty emotionally, yeah, yeah, pretty hard to look at uh, somebody dying and then dead. Uh, and that was my first body. Did that ever have any impacts on you further down your track? Yeah, it did. When I was uh, in the police force uh, in traffic, I did 12, 13 years in the police force, in, in uh, 25 in the police, but in traffic, I was a lot on the road, went to many, many fatal accidents, dozens in fact. And uh, a few of those were uh, vehicles on fire, yeah, uh, pulling dead people out of cars that were burnt. Yeah, it always used to have a big effect on me. I'd sort of probably flashbacks. Not good. Jumping back to the SAS application, how did your family take it when you told them? Well, I didn't tell them because Dad Dad was a hard taskmaster and he always used to tell me I was useless and you know, it wouldn't amount to anything and all this sort of stuff. So I just said, look, I've been transferred out from Sydney and I'm going to Perth. And they said, oh, what's the unit? And I said, oh, they, they do things with parachutes. You know, they pack parachutes and all that sort of stuff, and it's called special air service. And, and mum had bought me the book 10 years before us. I mean, she didn't, didn't tweak, and dad didn't have a clue. But anyway, I went over there, and so I didn't tell them what I was doing because I knew that if I failed and then they found out, you know, the old you know, dad would say, well, told you, useless. So I didn't tell, I just said I was, I told them I was going to Perth and that's where the letters they used to write to me, you go to SAS Perth, but they didn't know what SAS did. I mean, you didn't Google things those days. I mean, yeah, Dad did find out and I'll tell you how, but um, well after the training. So I went over there and we uh, uh, we did our selection. There was, don't quote me, there was 74, I think, on our selection card. We called it cards in those days, they call it selection now. Um, there was 74 on our card. And at the end of it, there was four of us that received our berets passed. So that's a fairly high attrition rate. And a lot of, most of the guys, I was the only ordnance guy, I think, before and since uh, that has ever passed selection. I mean, normally they come from all the combat corps, infantry, engineers, armoured, artillery, commandos, whatever. Ordnance is really, you know, you don't very, very often, it's a big stretch to go from ordnance to SAS. Two of the other guys were from a battalion and another guy was a, a Royal Marine Commando Major on attachment to the Australian Army and he passed in his own right. He was a lovely guy. I won't mention his name because he's now dead, but he's a lovely, lovely man. And the four of us, four of us passed. And during the selection, which was very difficult, obviously, yeah, beds would be empty. Never knew why, nobody would say, and you just get on with the day's activities. The next day there'd be another bed empty and, you know, people just disappeared. Prior to signing up for the SAS, what did you actually know of them? Uh, not a lot, actually. I mean, I remember um, Burma and I talking about it. And again, there was no Google, so you had to get books, and there was there was hardly any books about SAS. The Phantom Major was all about British SAS. So all I all I could glean from asking people, and and if you were in ordnance and you go up to to Ingleburn Inf Centre Infantry Training Centre, and say, "Oh, could you tell me anything about SAS?" They look at your badge and go, "What? You're an idiot." Yeah, <laughs> what do you want to read some comics, son, or something? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I obviously did ask a lot of people about it and probably got some information that they used to operate in small uh, groups behind enemy lines and do lots of stuff, adventurous, you know, adventurous type stuff. 
And, uh, yeah, so that my knowledge of SAS in those days was very limited because there was nothing you could access to research. So I didn't know much, but I knew it sounded sort of interesting. And my mate was there, so I thought, well, it's good enough for him. It's good enough for me. I'll go. You found recruit training a bit of a breeze, but what about SAS training? Uh, SAS training was, was a different kettle of fish, uh, absolutely different. As I said, I was uh, in ordinance. I was a skinny little seven-year-old. I'll show you later some photos of me when I was 17 and 18. It's just there's nothing. I was a six-foot two beanpole. No muscle, tone, nothing. I mean, yeah, and even though I was a good shot, I used to shoot kangaroos with Dad and new bushcraft and all that sort of stuff. I mean, my, my military training skills was very were very limited, you know, map reading and, and all that sort of gear that is prerequisite to probably go there were very basic. And the training, uh, the SAS Carter was very intense immediately. I think the first day we did a five-mile run and from then on it just progressed and we're heavily into weapons training and, and SIG work and map reading and, you know, doing what, like, on your orienteering type stuff all the time. And your map reading had to be really spot on and, you know, you had to learn how to read maps, you know, understand maps and, and physical fitness was a big part of it. I all, A lot of the people always say, I mean, they obviously ask a lot of people that are in units like that, what got you through? Well, my sense of humour for a start, you had to have a sense of humour and I was just bloody stubborn. You know, I did not want to go back, walk back into 2BOD with my tail between my legs and these bastards say, I told you, you know, at least you last a week, I suppose. No, no way. I used to run with boots full of blood. You know, I could hear slish, and I'd take off and there'd be blisters burst and I'd wring the socks out and just, you know, I'd pee on my feet, you know, because Dad'd say, oh, pee on your feet and harden them up, you know, uric acid. Well, I used to do that. <laughs> I'd put my socks, man, I'd, I'd just push myself all the time. You know, people dropped out. It's like if you've ever done marathon running, you know, every person you overtake is just like, wow. That's another one there. Click, bang, and you go under the next one. And, and people were taken off the SAS course every day, every night, whatever. And I'd say, well, another chance, you yeah. know. Well, they have to pass somebody, so maybe I might be one of them. So, yeah, I just I just persevered out of sheer stubbornness and the skills that Dad had taught me, albeit badly delivered, but all the skills he taught me, uh, survival skills, stubbornness, listen, you know, don't speak and listen and stop chatting, find out what they really are trying to tell you. And, and a lot of uh, the SAS training, I remember in those days, was self-discipline. They'd tell you once. They, at the end of the day, almost like a passing comment. Okay, uh, map read exercise tomorrow, start CIO 600 and uh, yeah, greens and uh, pack one water bottle. They just go away. And you think, oh, well, it'd be an easy day tomorrow. And if you didn't hear it, and if you turned up with the wrong gear or you didn't turn up because you, you know, didn't, find out what the hell was going on the next day you just didn't go they a lot of it was self just to be you had to do it yourself they tell you once what to do tell you once usually how to do it and that was it were there any times that you thought that's it i'm done or oh, many times when you oh. got so close to calling it quits oh every time the um every time the, the names would be read out you know like uh, to move on to the next day or every time you come back into your little barrack room I was waiting to see, I don't know how people were told that they weren't weren't around the next day, but, you know, I was waiting for a note on the pillow or something, you know, <laughs> go home or something, you know, go to the orderly room, get a train ticket. 
Yeah, I, there's many times I thought, ah, oh, this is it. I've stuffed this one up. You know, I was f- four minutes over the 20 mile or something, you know, because we're allowed four hours for 20 miles, nine, 90 minutes for nine miles. Unbelievable. That's full pack and weaving. Unbelievable. Yeah, like really, and that's miles, not kilometres. And I remember when we did the 20 milers out the West Coast Highway, we'd start off in the morning and run out of camp north up the West Coast Highway. And four hours and you'd be running. And it was all in your own time. You didn't run as a group. You know, a lot of it was individual stuff. So you'd be in your own mind set. You didn't run as a big group, you know, to get everybody through. You'd start off that way, but then people would fall out and keep going ahead and pull back and whatever. So you, a lot of the time in those sort of runs, you'd be running on your own. And uh, I remember they used to always have a truck parked at the 20 mile mark. And if you were there within four hours, you'd hear the engine start up, then the lights of the tail lights of the truck come on you'd be running and if you didn't get right there at four hours if if the if the required time was four hours and I, i'm sure it was four hours for, for 20 miles four hours you'd hear the truck start up and move part and you couldn't jump on it you had to finish go to this finish line and then make your own way back to swanbourne and uh, get cleaned up you'd miss out on breakfast and get to the first period so you'd have to make your own way back you know hitchhike or do whatever so they were pretty ruthless in that you know they you didn't stuff up and if you did stuff up, well, I, I don't think I passed every run. So they, they must have had some latitude for, for tryers. They must have seen something in me, God knows what, but they must have seen something in me that, you know, this guy, this little bastard's pretty stubborn. He's bloody, you know, he'll keep trying. So they cut me some slack, I'd like to think. But I passed most runs. I passed just about every test. Well, I must have passed most tests because they wouldn't have let you through. And we've come across this term, was wondering what it means, shoot and scoot. Shoot and scoot, yeah, SAS. That's you know, that's an acronym or something. Shoot and scoot, smooth as silk, yeah, slack as shit, yeah, all that sort of stuff. All those, they just yeah, shoot and scoot. Well, our main role was not to get into contact. Uh, our main role in Vietnam was reconnaissance, yeah, surveillance, reconnaissance, gaining information. So shoot and scoot would probably have come out of you know, if you have a contact, you scoot, and we used to break contact very quickly we had methods to do that and get out of there our task was not to you know stand and fight there's only five of us and sometimes 10 if we had a 10-man patrol but that was not our job was not a battalion type situation you know shooting's good get out of there by this point had your father figured out that you're in the SAS? oh well sorry yeah getting back to that when i was at home on pre-em leave I got malaria in New Guinea. So when I came home on pre-em leave, I was pretty sick with malaria, but then I had two impacted abscessed wisdom teeth, which necessitated me going to a Macquarie Street specialist organised by Victoria Barracks because these things had to be extracted. And I remember I didn't have a general anaesthetic and uh, I just remember Dad took me and he was holding me in the chair as they put jaw blocks, 20 needles in each tooth. And this the specialist had almost his knee on my chest pulling these teeth out which were impacted and abscessed on my jaw everybody's told me i should have gone under general setting i mean that i could have died anyway blood was spurting out of my mouth i remember and these teeth are like i've still got them actually i know it's weird but i've still got them with pieces of bone in the roots and because the roots are like that they're all twined around anyway pulled them out and bloody uh stitched me up and by the i got home and when the uh painkillers wore off that night I just let out this horrible scream and uh and mum came in and uh, all I had was Panadol in those days so I just had Panadol but I'd told this specialist 
nurse, whatever, ring Victoria Barracks because I don't think I'll be able to get on the plane the next three or four days to go back to Perth. I'm on pre-em leave for Vietnam. So make sure you make the call, okay? Well, she never did it, did she? So I remember um, uh, Dad was going to, he was in charge of haunted police station in those days and he was an inspector and uh, knock, knock on the door. I'm in bed with a face like a football. And uh, these two military police turn up and they said, uh, it's your son, blah, blah. And they said, yeah, he said, yeah, he's sick. He said, well, he's a deserter. Not AWOL. If you're AWOL in peacetime, if you are on an operational order to go overseas to a war, basically, I'm using all the wrong terms, but, you know, um, and if you don't make it, you're, you're a deserter. So I was a deserter. Anyway, they duly came into my bedroom and <laughs> saw that I was there and, you know, unable to make the plane. So then they made the calls and blah, blah, blah. But I nearly missed out on going to Vietnam. But the night before, uh, Dad was going to work and um, he said to his uh, his sergeant up there or something he said oh i'll leave early a bit bit early tomorrow uh young fellas on the way to vietnam and the, this old bloke who'd done some time in the army apparently said oh what's he in and dad said oh something about uh, something called sas he's in uh, it's in perth or something and this sergeant said what the, is he mad is he what is he stupid has he got a death wish and dad said what, what do you mean <laughs> what are you talking about? Anyway, sat him down, told him all about it, and Dad came home and for probably the first time in in his my life, he actually showed that I was sort of half worth something. So we then organised one day to, he'd take me down to the pub for a beer before I went back. And when he went down, he told a few people there that he knew, oh, yeah, this is Donio's son. I was only 20. You know, he's in SAS and go to Vietnam and, you know, they none of them knew what SAS was. And, uh, yeah, so proud of me and all this and, uh, yeah, it was just... Anyway, yeah, so that we got over that and uh, I remember he told me two things, keep your head down and don't go out with the local girls. Well, I, I, I ignored both. <laughs> Tell me about when you arrived at Nui Dat. Um, I had my pre-am leave in Sydney. Uh, Mum and Dad saw me off at Mascot Airport. And then I think within about three weeks of coming back from pre-em leave, uh, we left. Flew out of Perth on a Qantas 707, I think it was, uh, via Singapore. We had to put on a civilian shirt in Singapore because the rules of the government at that stage were not allowed to have military personnel pass through the airport. So we got off the plane, but we had to put on these Hawaiian shirts or whatever we had. You know, we had polyester pants on and Hawaiian, whatever. Then we got back in the plane and, and it's a short hop over to Vietnam. And I remember looking out the window. Uh, I think there might have been a few fighters around because uh, we're landing at Tonsonut in Saigon, busiest airport in the world in those days. There's a hell of a lot happening, all, to- all planes of all different types. Anyway, I, I'm sure my mental image is, a, is of, a, of an F4 Phantom. I didn't know what it was then, but an F4 Phantom on the, out on the wing, over the wing somewhere, almost greeting us to uh, Vietnam. And and for most of us who had never been, a lot of the guys, sorry, in my squadron, in two squadron, uh, had done a previous tour in 1968 in SAS and other units. But um, So the, the, there was quite a good percentage of experienced soldiers in our squadron. But to us, uninitiated, I mean, you know, it's like, wow, we're in a war. I mean, this is like... Jesus, this is for real. So we landed at uh, Vietnam, Tonsonut. They cracked the doors and I just remember the heat and the smell. Unbelievable. Never forgotten the smell of Vietnam. I've been back many times since. Nothing smells like Vietnam. I'm not, not being critical of Vietnam. I just, it's just that smell. It's in, my, it's in my mind now, my brain. Anyway, there we hung around in a uh, fairly hot um, aircraft hangar for a while. An hour or so, and then we jumped on C-123 Fat Rat uh, planes. They were like uh, 
small baby Herks, and for the short hop up to Nui Dat. So we went straight into Saigon and then straight up to Nui Dat, uh, which was up country, and then we got greeted off and loaded on the back of trucks there and taken up to SAS Hill because SAS had the best real estate in the task force. I know there'd be a lot of other veterans from Vietnam listening to this interview in, in the years to come and they're going, bloody SAS cowboys. But we, we did have the best real estate. We had the altitude. You know, we, there was the only one little hill in Nui Dat and we were on it. <laughs> and everybody else was in the, in the rubber plantations around us. So we had, uh, we had the room with a view, basically. It was great. But I remember going up there and uh, Kiwi SAS was there. They had a troop there at the time and all the other blokes from the squadron that we were replacing, one squadron, were there. Yeah, and we knew a lot of them anyway through you know, previous associations. So uh, you'll be sorry, all that sort of stuff. They, I, I think from memory they stayed on for about a week or two yeah, to for our famil period because patrol still had to keep going out and until we were trained up or at least done our in-country training they still had to conduct patrol so a lot of their squadron was still there and then we just got into it found our tents yeah two two to a tent i shared a tent with a bloke called bill nisbet and i remember the first night we were asleep you know it's been a fairly long day from you know perth all the way to vietnam and uh the yanks had a couple of uh, 155 uh, artillery pieces down the road just down the bottom of the hill and, they, and every now and again they'd fire H&I fire, harassment and interdictment fire, any time of the day or night, and they'd send them out to pre-designated locations in the province somewhere to disrupt the Viet Cong and the NVA, and um, they'd fire them at special in, in certain areas. And um, these things let rip about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and, and on this occasion they fired over the hill, over us, and it was like you know, Volkswagens flying through the air, and, I mean, the vacuum caused by their and the bloody tent lifted up and dust and because Vietnam you know, in the dry season is just like the back of Coba. It's, it's all red dust and it's dusty. And this thing, our bloody bedstuff, what the bloody hell happened? Yeah, we didn't know. No, no, that's one thing nobody told us. Yeah, that I'd, you might get woken up by a very, very series of loud bangs. Well, we thought, yeah, we were trying to grab helmets and bloody rifles and die for bunkers and everything, but it was outgoing, not incoming, so... Um, that was our welcome to Vietnam. And then the next day we'd started our in-country training. It was, you know, pretty full on then until one squadron left us and we took over. Can you tell us what it was like when you went off on your first patrol? Yeah, the first patrol uh, was uh, what they used to term like a nursery patrol. And if they could, they would deploy you to an area that was known not to be hot. So you'd go out and for meal. And, and what it was, was a shakedown for the patrol, even though we'd been training together as a patrol for 12 months, including New Guinea and all that sort of stuff. It was a shakedown for, for all our patrol procedures and, and preparations so that we could practice on patrol what we would do on an, in a normal operational situation. So we, we went out for, uh, I think it was a five or six day patrol the first time. We just went through the patrol procedures, you know, getting off the chopper, uh, heading off at a bearing and, and we had a, a task to do to recce probably four grid squares, four 1,000 by 1,000 grid squares. So that was 4,000 metres basically. So we had to follow a certain line. We had to check out a, a, a stream uh, see if it was still running enemy activity on any of the tracks that we, we knew were in the area or we'd find new tracks and map them. Our midday procedure, and I I was the sig- signal guy in the patrol, even though I was Royal Australian Infantry, I was the Morsi. 
So twice a day I had to send in the schedule message, which was basically a sit rep uh, saying who we are, where we are, what direction we're having, uh, nothing to report. It was all coded. So I had a little code book called an ATLP one-time letter pad code book. So the skip, the patrol commander, would stop when I had to do my sched, usually about 11 or 12 in the morning, and then about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. So we'd all hunker down, five around, I'd be in the middle, four around, I'd be in the middle. He'd give me a message. I'd put my poncho over my head to deaden any sound and get in the zone for Morse, and I'd encode it in his message into the code set up my SIG set, I'd already run the aerial out, do the message, you know, do the Morse, get the reply, decode it, and then pass it out to him. He'd say, right, let's, 10 minutes, we're off again, so off we'd sort of head. So we we, we got that down pat, because it was five, six-day patrol. So we, we got that routine down pat, and then the nighttime routine, uh, we used to go in, find an area that was really quite thick jungle, because we didn't operate near villages at all, so we operated right out in the Indian country sort of stuff. So there was no villages or anything around. Um, so we got the nighttime routine down, um, finding an area. The scout would say, yeah, this is it. The trial commander, check it out. We'd come in, do a fish hook, you know, go up and then come back around on ourselves to make sure we weren't being followed. Designated, you know, bed spots would all sleep in like a wheel, uh, all touching each other somehow. No hoochies or anything. You just lie on the ground, you know. Take your pack off and lean against it. Undo your belt, that's it. As I said, you know, the, you don't take your boots off, don't take anything off. So at the end of a, a patrol, you're just manky. But so we got that right down pat, making meals, you know, making dinner or whatever, you know, heating up our rations, and which were all dehydrated usually. So you got that down pat, you know, sort of shake the routine out. It's different doing it for real than it is in training. So, you know, you're really aware of where you are. Noises, no noise, no talking, everything's done in a whisper, sign language, all that sort of stuff, you know. So, yeah, the first patrol was uh, was an easy one. We were lucky we didn't get any contact, nor didn't see enemy, I don't think. Saw evidence of enemy on tracks, but no enemy. Uh, and from then on, we, um, you know, probably back in base three, four days to a week and then back out again, and it just that just went on. Because we ended up only doing about nine months, a bit over nine months. And I think our, our patrol, 2-5 patrol F troop, did about probably 25, 26 patrols, a lot of patrols, and some really long ones, like 12, 14 days, long patrols. But yeah, it was it certainly, I mean, I know it sounds sort of blasé and probably a bit, bit uh, immature to say, but it was actually quite exciting because, yeah, you're doing what you're being, tra- you're, you've been training for so long to do this one task, to do these tasks, and then you actually get to do them. And it, it's actually... Yeah, it's big shoe stuff. It's, you're doing it and it's in a war zone and, and anything could happen at any time. And as the tour wore on, the tension was actually quite palpable. And I used to always describe people, you know, when people have said, yeah, what was the tension like over there? Well, I said, first, for the first three months, somebody would say, oh, g'day, buddy, how are you going? Yeah, good, mate, good. Yeah, no worries. Six months, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then at nine months, I'd say, they'd say, g'day, buddy, how are you going? What do you effing want to know for? Bang! You'd, yeah, you'd punch him. So actually it was the tension just built up because every time you were getting ready for patrol, I, I've read about you know, people in bomber command or fighters you know, going over as your tour ends. Well, you haven't, been, you haven't been killed yet. The likelihood of getting something bad happening is, is yeah, exponential and uh, it's all getting towards the point. So 
you know, and every time you'd be sitting in your chop in the chopper going out, and sometimes we were in a chopper for 40 minutes, so we go a long way out from the task force, away from artillery support sometimes, and you'd be just in your own thoughts, and then the pilot would, you had all had headphones, and the pilot would, you know, give you the warning audio, down in 10, you know, down in 5 or something. So then you're, and you'd just be in your own headspace, and then you'd uh, make sure everything's got, you know, your weapon's good, everything good to go. And then the dangerous part was landing, you know, the jumping off the chopper because you never know what you're jumping into. A lot of patrols jumped into some heavy shit when they hit the ground and literally jumped back on again because, you know, the, the LZ was compromised. And you'd be very aware of the danger because as the novelty wears off early in the tour, now you're in the big stuff and, and you know what, what could happen because it had happened to other patrols. So when you're going through the scrub very slowly, very, very, very slowly, listening for enemy, looking for enemy signs and all this sort of stuff, not knowing what's around the next tree, around the next bend and whatever, yeah, your expect level of expectation and danger is heightened all the time. So, you know, you're just living on pure adrenaline the whole time. Yeah, it was very, you jump on the chopper when they come in finally to pick up. Sometimes you'd let rip with your gun, you know, they'd say, yeah, so you'd let rip a magazine out the side of the chopper just to, it's like blow, busting a boil or something, you know, just getting rid of that tension. And then you get back and you do your debriefs and, and have a so-called shower and uh, and then just get absolutely maggoted, hammered, you know, because uh, <laughs> that's the only release we had. We didn't do drugs, uh, but we did booze. And uh, I love bourbon in those days. Bourbon and Southern Comfort my, were my poison. What was it like getting in for the first time you got on the chopper ready to go and then getting in the chopper to pull out? The choppers in Vietnam had no doors. The Hueys had no doors, no seats. So we'd all pile in in a certain order as we were going to get off. So you just sit on the floor basically and uh, the scout would usually be the last one on, so he'd be the first off and he'd be sitting at the door, the open door. No seatbelts, no seats, nothing. He'd have his feet on the skids and he'd be just you know, sitting out there, the, the door gunner, the RAF door gunner would be there with his, you know, twin 60s, all locked and loaded, ready to go. So, yeah, you'd be flying out over this country for the first time. I remember the first time, you know, you'd be looking out of the chopper, just, yeah, wow. Yeah, and you'd see, you'd go over lots of areas of bomb damage, you know, 500 pound bomb strikes by the B 52s. Yeah, you'd see that damage and flying over villages, which we were flying right away from. But, you know, you'd be sort of well aware of the environment. The jungle. At the end of a patrol, getting back on the chopper, there is nothing like the sound of a Huey when you know it's coming in to pick you up. I mean, I, I can't, I just can't describe it because you don't actually, but you feel like, you know, now I'm going to be safe. Well, a lot of people weren't safe until you all they got way all the way back because choppers got shot down and all this sort of stuff, but not in our case, but um, they did. But there was just this sense of, pure relief you're in this stinking bloody hot jungle and you've been there for days and suddenly over the treetops comes this huey you know, you know and then you see the gunships because they were always surrounded by two two gunships hueys with lots of rockets and miniguns and they'd come in down the side and this the slick that would pick us up would skimming over the trees and flare onto the LZ and we'd be running on and just literally jump on and pull the next bloke on, pull the next bloke on. And then this thing, it wouldn't be hanging around because, you know, LZs are often hot and you don't know who's watching from the from the, the J, the edge of the jungle. And this thing would just lift up and then bank and then off, followed by the two gunships and then you just, you just go and, and you, I mean, your pulse must go from 140 beats a minute down to... 40. 
It was like, oh, it was the best feeling, yeah, and just the noise and everything. And then the fresh air, yeah, because yeah, you're in this stinking jungle, you're, just, you're sweating like, you know, like doing Bikram yoga or something, you know, and then suddenly you're up there and it's this air is just blowing, even though you're stuck. And I remember we, we did stink because even the pilots and the gunnies, they go, oh, fuck, you blokes are really ripe, yeah. I remember, so that was in the chopper with it. And I always remember when we got back to the hill, there was a routine, a ritual, that any incoming patrol, the whole of the squadron would know that, you know, our patrol, you know, two fire patrols coming in, two eight patrols coming in. And so it all, you know, whatever you were doing, you'd go down to the LZ, NADZAB LZ on, on SAS Hill, to greet the incoming patrol. You know, say, get out of how to go, fellas, you know, would, would you do anything, you know? I remember it happening to us, and we, we used to, it used to happen to me when you'd greet other patrols in. They'd get off the chopper, clear their weapons, give your thumbs up to the, the chopper and say, yeah, thanks, mate, next time. Yeah, they were our taxis, and then they'd take off, and then you'd walk towards all your mates, and they'd sort of, it was like party of the Red Sea because you stunk. You smelled like animals. So you'd walk, they'd be all gathered around and then you'd walk through and they'd be, they'd be all moving away. See ya. <laughs> Get cleaned up. Everything was rotten. Your feet were rotten. You'd take your boots off. All this dead white skin had come off. I never wore socks because uh, I found out the first time. I didn't listen to this old guy and he said, don't wear socks, mate, because you'll rip them off and rip half your feet off. And I did. So I just wear bare, bare, put bare feet in my Yank combat boots, never wear underpants. So you were just rotten. Your body was rotten. It was just like slimy rotten. So you had to scrape all this gunge and gunk and you didn't take things off and you were sweating and you're either wet from sweat or wet from rain or you know, wet from lots of other things. So um, when you came back... You'd clean your webbing, uh, and we had sort of rudimentary showers, but then we had 44-gallon drums full of water, so you'd take your webbing off and take all the ammo and all the stuff out of it, and then you'd, you'd get a scrubbing brush and clean all the gunk and the mud off all your webbing and leave that out to dry. And then you'd try and salvage your... We used to wear camouflage stuff, American camouflage. So you'd try and clean that up if you could, but if it had any rips, tears, you'd take it to the queue store and just get a brand-new set straight away, no questions asked, or we'd burn it because it was just unsalvageable. I mean, you couldn't even wear it around the camp because it was just, you know, that thin and just disgusting. And and because, you know, I, I, we might have had cakes of soap, but, um, you know, when you wash something and hang it out, then it gets, it's like hard. It's like cardboard because it's full of dirt still. It wasn't washed properly. Uh, but you would salvage your webbing all the time. Your webbing was your personal stuff in your pack. You'd clean all that up, make sure your weapon was all cleaned and serviced and, you know, that was your that was your main important task and clean your boots up scrub your boots and do all that sort of stuff and then um then assess your greens because you had quite a few sets of them you know because they were just on issue they were there so i oh, know i'll get rid of this so sometimes you would have a bit of a ceremonial bonfire and all stand around with a with a bourbon and you know and uh talk rubbish while the flames leapt up into the into the sky and yeah you know, whatever or throw it at the dump or or uh, give it back to the queue store and they'd, I don't know, whatever they used to do to it. But, yeah, stuff used to rapidly go, you rapidly go through clothes. Uh, and then finally, uh, after a few beers and your debriefs and all the rest of the stuff, the next day, if you were lucky, you'd get a night down at Vangtao. So you go down and, and then you would access the uh, girly bars and the massage places and they have a steam room. And they would sweat all this stuff out of you, you know, and bust all your... I remember busting all your blackheads and your 
pimples and everything and cleaning your fingernails and scrubbing your dog tags and giving you a pedicure and, you know, all for the price of about, what, $2 or something. Unbelievable. And you'd feel a million dollars, you know, because you were just rotten. Your body was rotting. What sort of relief was it, though, when you got down to Vung Tao and then all this tension out in the jungle against the, any sort of hostile and then getting into with all the locals? We just went nuts. Just ridiculous. Just stupid. And again, I was 20. I had my 21st birthday on, on, on a patrol, the last day of a patrol. So I was 20 year old. So, you know, anybody out there listening, you're, when you're 20 and, and considering what we've just been through and you survive, just went nuts. I mean, I was like a kid in a, you know, 15 toy shops and a, and, a, and a chocolate factory. I was just unbelievable. I remember we used to go to uh, get off the chopper because we would take the uh, night squad and choppers that took us out trial you know, with our taxis and every night they would leave one chopper from memory one chopper back on the task force base at Nui Dat for a dust off and then everybody else would come back to rest the squadron to go back to Vung Tau where their base was so we'd catch one of those choppers down to Vung Tau as a taxi and then we used to sleep in the beds of the crewies you know, crew that were on duty or something so we had a bed and they had flush toilets and all the stuff that we didn't have you know and uh we'd leave a slab of beer out of their bed as a little gift every time we did so and then we used to catch a little lambretta or something a little three-wheel taxi into town and i, I remember my first time i went to Vung Tau, i was like jesus I was, like, I was like a possum i mean yeah there was girly bars and massage places and clothes shops and yeah like little bar bazaar type stuff I didn't know what to look at and touch first. I was just like, I was just, I was just a kid. You know, I was just a kid. So I used to go into bars. I remember, I remember one thing I did used to do. I used to get drunk and do all the, you know, things with the girls as everybody did. But I remember going into the bars and 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 after a while the mama sides, even though we were there only one day after a patrol. They they know they remember faces and they used to love the Australian the Octoloys as opposed to the Americans because even though we're rowdy and yeah stupid we obviously must have treated them like you treat anybody nice just nice and yeah we'd pay them money but the Yanks had lots of money I think they thought that allowed them to act act not nicely um, whereas the Australians used to act stupidly but not not nicely yeah they were always respectful I think by and large. I'm saying. So I used to go to these, my favourite bars, and I remember just sitting there, and Mum started to know me. She was the bar, head of the bar. She owned the bar. And I used to sit there and, oh, Mum started. And uh, I'd get a whiskey cake, whiskey and cake, and I'd just sit there and she said, you want a girl? No, 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 I don't want a girl. So, but I'd sit there and, and they used to have times that the bar was quite quiet. So I'd go in there at those times. And I used to have a drink and they used to have all this great music, you know, Rolling Stones and Purple Shadows and oh, all this, you know, all this stuff. And I'd just sit there and listen. But then I'd watch the girls, all the bar girls, in a quiet time. they come out and they put their makeup on and they just get ready for the night. And I'd just sit there and, and I'd just watch them. It was that little normal normality, watching a girl put makeup on and talk to each other. Yeah, you know, no weapons around. It was just, that was normal. That was quite nice. Because yeah, soon you were back into it again, and you, and uh, so then then I when when the bar actually opened up, or that bar or another bar, I just go off and go nuts again. Do you remember the first time you made contact with the enemy and took a life? It was an ambush, a rifle ambush. I seem to remember.
The rest of Thomas K's interview with Vietnam and SAS veteran Don Barmby is out tomorrow. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast to get the rest of Don's story. Want to see photos of Don in Vietnam? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. Or check out our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>